opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Summer. And I'm Jennifer. And this is episode 25, The Zebra Murders. Yep, we're taking it back to San Francisco, like we talked about in the Doodler episode. All right, and we're in the 70s, aren't we? Still in the 70s. Okay. We have not left the 70s. We haven't left the 70s. <laughs> Apparently, it was a very um, tumultuous time in the 70s. Yeah, and I didn't know all this went on. Of course, I wasn't born yet when this was happening. Because you were a late 70s. I was a late 70s baby. And to see all of what happened in San Francisco, yeah, in California, I don't remember anybody talking about the zebra murders. This case started the biggest manhunt in San Francisco. So you would think that maybe that would stick around and people yeah, would talk, talk about, about it. it but yeah. no, it, it. I have never heard about it. And you said that you've never heard about I've it. never heard about it. All of your California people. <laughs> yeah, right. And we are true crime junkies. So you would think that we had heard about this one, but we have not. So I'm very interested. We'll uh, deep dive into this one because there's a lot happening here. And you read a book, actually, right? I did, yes. The book was called Zebra by Clark Howard, written in the 1970s, uh, published in 1979. It includes interviews with victims, relatives of the deceased, witnesses, police officers. It also includes incident reports, case notes, um, crime lab and ballistic reports, transcripts from the informant, criminal records, and testimony. So it has a lot he of was, stuff. She did a thorough job with this. Very thorough. If you are interested in reading the book, just keep in mind that it was written in the 70s. So the language is dated, and it's disturbing. It's gory, yeah, but informative. And it's one of the only two books written about this series of murders. Which is crazy to me. This one's going to end up being a two-parter because there was so much information. There was a lot. I told Summer, I was like, look, I already have 18 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we can fit this into one. <laughs> Definitely not one episode. Yeah. And we wanted to make sure we gave enough information to where people could really understand what was happening and the lives of the victims and the assailants and just the overall story. Yeah. You know, so you really know what's going on. Yeah. But I did want to say that, you know, the Zodiac Killer was happening around that time as well. And when you Google it, there's already like over 50 books written about the Zodiac Killer. So and, I was like, in comparison, there's only, only two about this. Isn't that wild? It's crazy to me that there's only two books about this. And after you hear it, I think our listeners will feel the same way because these are very brutal murders. So we always have a trigger warning at the beginning, but I would say this is this is heavier than usual. Yeah. And we'll give you a disclaimer when the first murder comes up, because that one's it's the most graphic. It's the most graphic. Mm -hmm. And so we do want to just give you a heads up about it. Yeah. Because after that, the first one, I mean, you know, the emoji with the big eyes, <laughs> yes, like that was <laughs> it's like, what did I just read? Oh. It doesn't sound real. No. And Jennifer's like, I need you to read this and just like, take a look because it's too graphic. And I was like, well, it is very graphic. Yes. But obviously, this is what we do as we talk about this stuff. So we just wanted to give you a warning. Yeah. So we'll give you a heads up when we get there. So should we jump into it? Or I, should we? Let's should do we it. Let's get started. Yes. All right. 
From October 1973 to April 1974, in San Francisco, California, the terrifying zebra murders took place. A group of Muslim extremists who called themselves the Death Angels committed at least 15 murders and wounded 8 to 10 confirmed victims. However, it is believed that prior to this, they could have committed upwards of 70 to 80 murders. These murders were racially motivated, hate crimes organized by a group of men associated with the Nation of Islam in order to eradicate the white race, who they stated were the blue-eyed devils. This killing spree would last for 179 days and would incite fear and chaos in the city of San Francisco. Now, I want to preface this by saying I am not an expert on religion at all. But there has to be some kind of context here, so I do want to touch on what the belief is for the Nation of Islam at that time in the specific temple. So I can't speak for if it was the belief everywhere and if it was practiced this way everywhere, but at the time, at the specific temple, this is what was being preached. Right. Because you only know about coffee cults, specifically freshly brewed noirs. I don't, that's, yeah. That's it. We don't even know that one very well yet. No, all I, know, all I know is we drink coffee <laughs> and we talk about true crime. And we tell you not to kill people and get hobbies. And get hobbies. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, as far as that goes, it's pretty safe. <laughs> yes. But yes, disclaimer here. Not, not an expert. Not a but, religious expert. Right. And this was just one temple specifically. You're not speaking to all the temples. Exactly. Okay. So the Nation of Islam was founded in Detroit on July 4th, 1930 by Wallace D. Fard a.k.a. Wallace Fard Muhammad. He worked as a door-to-door salesman before becoming a religious leader. The belief is that history can be divided into distinct cycles, each ruled by a new god who takes over for the predecessor. The center of the theology is that Allah is a black man and that this was the form that the first god took. Each god had different powers and abilities. The belief, then, is that over 6,000 years ago, the black race lived in a paradise on Earth That was destroyed by the evil wizard, Yakub, who created the white devils through a process called grafting. He discovered that the original black man had both a black germ and a brown germ, and he went through a process of breeding to dilute the germs and create the white race. Doesn't sound backed in science. (laughs) It doesn't sound backed by science? No, it doesn't to me. I don't think so, but you know, a lot of religion (laughs) is kind of that way, right? (laughs) Yes, I would agree. In 1931, he met Elijah Poole, a.k.a. Elijah Muhammad, and he trained Elijah into the secret of wisdom of the reality of God. The NOI considers Fard to be the Messiah of Judaism, the Mahdi of Islam, who is the prophesied redeemer of Islam, as Allah in the flesh, and the second coming of Jesus, the Christ, Jehovah, God, and the Son of Man. Fard mysteriously disappeared in 1934 and was seen last by Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad took over the leadership of Fard's group in Detroit and changed the name from the Allah Temple of Islam to Nation of Islam. For the next 41 years, he served as a mentor to influential men such as Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. He grew the small group into a large movement, developed many businesses and schools, and created the largest African-American newspaper in the U.S. At his peak, the organization is estimated to have had 250,000 members. After Elijah passed away in 1975, his son, Warith Dean Muhammad, was declared the new leader, and he changed the name of the organization to the American Society of Muslims and would attempt to move in a more orthodox Islamic movement. In 1981, Louis Farrakhan started a new group, which would take back the name of the Nation of Islam. 
and would work towards the original beliefs, and it would readopt racist and anti-Semitic views. For a time, they would embrace Dianetics from Scientology, which if you're not familiar with the term, Dianetics was a process created by L. Ron Hubbard to bring forth powers that lie dormant in the subconscious of your brain. And from what I can see, or what I could read, Farrakhan still leads the Nation of Islam, and from what I've read, it looks like they still work together with Scientology. No. We ta- we've talked about Scientology uh, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we sure have. <laughs> don't agree with their methods. No. Like, harassing people is not a good way to go about life. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, the basis of what was preached back then was the eradication of the, quote, grafted white snakes for falling victim to white supremacy for over 400 years in the mosque in San Francisco to test the worthiness of becoming what they would call a death angel. The members had to off a certain amount of white people, nine men, five women, or four kids. The preferred method would be decapitation, but any death would count. Completing this would grant you your wings, which would be drawn on a photo and hung on the wall of the mosques. It should be noted that this does not reflect the group's beliefs and practices now, and they state they welcome all members of different ethnic groups and promote nonviolence. This was just a specific mosque or just a specific temple. Yes. At, and at that time. At that time. Right. Yeah. So. Which in every religion, there's extremists. I agree with that. Yeah. Yes. There's there's always extremists in like anything. Yeah. They just take it to that next level. Except in our coffee cult. None yet. None yet. <laughs> Maybe we drink too much coffee. Is that the, the I don't know. level of that's our extremists? A, that's our level of extremists. I mean, our members so far have been very chill, just highly caffeinated. Because we're already chill. That's why we need so much coffee <laughs> so that we can get some energy up in here. <laughs> that's true. So let's uh, jump into the actual incident. Anthony Harris was serving time in San Quentin in 1973. He was initially in for a battery charge on a police officer for which he served two and a half years. He and his brother, Pinky, were fighting in the street, and an officer came over to break up the fight. Anthony was a judo expert, so when the officer got in the middle of them, he reflexively turned on the officer and disabled him in seconds. Now he was serving time for his second term on a burglary charge. He didn't mind prison, except that he found himself getting pretty bored quickly. He first worked in the food service, then he was assigned to the waterfront, and then worked on the dock. Then he had a job in the book bindery, but afterwards, he had a lot of idle time. He tried to sign up for the school program that they had in prison since he only had up to a third grade education, but unfortunately, they denied him because they said there were already too many black people, which is stupid. That is so stupid. 70s. <laughs> 70s. Like we said, it was a, that was just not a great time. No, not the best time. He also tried to learn how to bake, but the counselors told him he wasn't smart enough. Oh. I feel bad because it does seem like he's trying to find different avenues to invest his time. He's looking for hobbies. Right. Exactly. He's trying to find hobbies. Let the guy have some hobbies. Jeez. But instead, to occupy his time, he would attend Nation of Islam services at the auditorium. It's not clear if he was always a believer, but he would continue to practice those beliefs from this time forward. Could have been baking. But no. Could have been. They they pushed him away from that. Okay. Making some treats. (laughs) Some treats. (laughs) Here, Anthony would meet Jesse Lee Cooks, who was serving his last year of a seven and a half year sentence for armed robbery. He was known to have an intimidating demeanor and was known to say some off the wall things. Jesse approached him after the first meeting Anthony attended. He wanted him to teach him judo. 
He said he specifically wanted to know how to bust a heart with a punch to the chest. Which is a thing in judo? Yes. And then what? The heart stops? It kills you. Yeah. It It bursts your heart. Oh, burst your heart. I guess that force. Wow. He want yeah, he wanted to know how to kill, how to come up from behind somebody and snap their neck. It's because they didn't let him bake. Well, this was this was Jesse. And oh. Jesse, I think, already knew how to bake. <laughs> he already knew how to bake? I think he did, yes. <laughs> or he, he's going to learn because later he he does join the uh bakery. There's a there's a baking theme in this. Okay. Interesting. I didn't see this before. <laughs> I didn't put it in the notes, but in the book, yes, he he does bake when he gets out of Uh, prison okay but he still goes on to murder people unfortunately it wasn't the right hobby for him okay i mean he enjoyed it Hmm. but that's when he told him he wanted to become a death angel once they were both released anthony and jesse would begin to work at a moving and storage company called the black self-help which was a business created by the noi and focused on hiring believers coming out of prison and helping them get back on their feet the baking company was called i think shabazz bakery which was another option if people wanted to join. You go into the bakery. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Jesse got involved there, and that's where he learned how to bake. bake. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was a place for members or potential members to come and help rebuild their lives. The owner would hold meetings here and invite speakers to stir up hatred for white people. The leaders would study the audience's reactions and gauge the effectiveness of what they were preaching. Anthony would also begin to teach judo classes at the mosque during the week. This is where they would meet Larry Green, the youngest of the group. He was known to be tall, slim, and enthusiastic, and they'd become quick friends. He was born in Berkeley, California in 1953. His father had a good job with the University of California system and had a healthy relationship with his family. He studied at two community colleges while working various jobs. When he discovered NOI, he quit his job and began attending services at San Francisco's Temple number 26. This would be the specific temple that everyone attends. He was fascinated with prison life and would constantly ask Anthony and Jesse what it was like. And they would kind of get annoyed with that. Like, stop asking us. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. They won't let us bake bread. Yeah. (laughs) What else do you want to know? You don't want to go there. On October 20th, 1973, the group would make their first attempt at getting their wings. On 41 Francis Street, 11-year-old Michelle Carrasco was coming down the steps of her home. Inside the house, her brother Greg was having a birthday party. Michelle was going to greet her friend Marie Stewart, with whom she went to school with at Corpus Christi High. Marie was walking with her 15-year-old brother down the street. Michelle, Marie, and Frank were talking outside of their house by the stairs when they were approached by a man they didn't know. It was Jesse Lee Cooks. He asked Michelle where Mission Street was, and she pointed towards the corner, saying, up there, one block. He repeated the question, and she gave the same answer. That's when he drew the gun from his waistband and aimed it at them. Anthony and Larry were blocking any way of escape. Jesse took Michelle's arm, and the three kids followed him, since he still had the gun pointed at them. Frank and Michelle asked if they were drunk or joking around, because obviously that's... Like, this can't be real, right? Yeah, they're like, what's happening? And Jesse told them to shut up. As they were approaching the getaway van, Frank yelled out, cop, and that gave them their opportunity to break free and run away. Michelle ran down to a rectory of Corpus Christi Catholic Church, where she met Father Gerald for safety. Frank and Marie made it back to the Carrasco residence, where the police were called. The three men panicked, and they fled the scene. So they were able to escape. The kids got away. 
Yes. The first attempt. The first attempt kill kids oh my god yeah and you, if you think about it the the quota for kids is four so they were like that's the quickest way right for us to get our wings mm. because I, I believe it's five women to get your wings or nine men okay so less women yeah it's less kids and less women to oh, get your wings. terrible that's yeah so terrible. it's like that's that makes them i mean it's target. all terrible but still like women and children come on what yeah Jesse was more than upset that the kids got away. He and Larry were still eager to get their wings, so they continued their search that night. I think we this need to is, give the, the heads up here. This is the this is the first murder, and it's very graphic. A lot of violence, sexual assault, dismemberment, a lot of stuff. Yeah, just to be prepared. If you don't need to skip ahead, skip ahead. But if you listened to us before, we've covered some gory stuff. Yeah. That evening, Richard and Keita Hag were taking an evening stroll down Chestnut Street when a white van pulled up beside them. Richard was 30 and Keita was 28. The three men emerged and one pointed a gun at them and the other forcing them into the van. Keita ran off, but they grabbed Richard. They assumed this was a robbery, so she went back thinking that they would let them go when they took what they wanted. They were thrown into the back of the van and their hands were tied with heavy twine. Police officers Bruce Marovich and Ben McAllister were driving down Chestnut towards Powell when they observed some activity by a white van. The officers stopped and asked what was going on and Jesse said that they just had a flat and they were in the process of fixing it. The officers nodded and drove off and they had no idea about the victims in the back of the van. So isn't that... That's so sad. There's We always hear about like these really close calls where... If police knew or if they Mm. saw something, like something could have been prevented. Right. But they had no idea. Like no idea what was really going on. Larry was driving while Jesse and Anthony were in the back with Richard and Keita. Jesse was looking through Richard's pockets and Larry noticed this. He shouted at the back that they were not supposed to steal. So (laughs) we can kill you, (laughs) but we can't steal from you. Exactly. Exactly. So they, um, you know, it's. Makes a no little, sense. It's a little skewed. Mm-hmm. Anthony started to fondle Keita, and Richard noticed this, and he asked what they were doing to her. This pissed Jesse off, and so he picked up a wrench and repeatedly hit him in the face, <sighs> smashing his jaw in three different places. Mm-hmm. Keita saw this and called out to Richard. After Richard went unconscious, Jesse got up and raped Keita and forced her to give him oral sex. Larry was getting upset by this because the rule was to kill the, quote, white devils, not steal from them or rape them. So he's by the book, okay. Uh, Yeah. The moral compass here is very strange. Yeah. They drove for a while, but eventually pulled over at a single-track railroad spur in an alley of warehouses and loading docks. Once parked, Larry ran to open the back of the van and reached under the back of the passenger seat and pulled out a 16-inch machete. He started swinging it around in the air like he was testing it out and he was excited. Then he took Keita by her hair and dragged her onto the gravel. She was terrified, crying and begging for her life. Larry used a hip throw to drop her to the ground, then swung the machete and cut the throat of Keita Hag. He ran over to his friends with the bloody machete, did a victory dance, took a picture of the crime scene with a Polaroid camera to show as proof, and then stole the ring on her finger to give to Anthony as a gift since he was getting married soon. Jesse took the machete from Larry and hacked at Richard's face with it multiple times, then threw him out on the gravel after stealing his wallet. The men drove away in the van after this. That is so awful. Was she instantly dead? 
So, so her neck was almost decapitated, right? Yes. We will talk about, you know, what happens when the police get to the scene. Okay. But yeah, they basically decapitated her. And everything before that, you know, they're beating Richard with a, with a wrench. Yeah. Like breaking his jaw, smashing in his face, violating her. The fear that she must have felt when he took the machete out. Yeah. Started like swinging it around. I couldn't even fathom that. After what she went through. Yeah. yeah. John Battenberg and his wife, Beverly, were in the car driving west on 25th Street. They were getting some air before going to bed. As their car was passing the intersection of Minnesota Avenue, they saw a figure lurching and staggering in the shadows. They assumed that the guy was drunk, but as they kept driving closer, they realized that the man's hands were tied behind his back. He pulled over and hurried to the man, and it was Richard Hagg. He had survived. Oh my god. I know. Like, could you? No. I can't even imagine. Like, how do you live through that? I can't believe he lived through that. That takes so much willpower. Yeah. And so, wow. Because you know he must have lost a lot of blood when they hacked at his face with a machete. Yeah. And then he was knocked unconscious first with a wrench. Yes. Mm -hmm. He had to have some concussion. Like, with pure willpower, just to pull through and look for help. Wow. That's all I can say. Mm -hmm. He had survived and was looking for help for his wife. His face was terribly mutilated. His flesh had been hacked open down to the bone. His skull was open and exposed, and strips of skin were hanging from his face. It's like a horror movie. It sounds like one, yeah. Battenberg drove him to the nearest police station since he didn't know where the closest hospital was. When police arrived at the scene of the crime, they found Kita's body. Her head was laying back at a grotesque angle, neck open and almost severed from her body. Her backbone and spinal cord had been lacerated. She was pronounced dead at 11.45 p.m., and Richard was at the hospital undergoing surgery. He needed more than 200 stitches and oh, multiple wow. surgeries, but he would survive. God, so he survives, for sure. He does, yeah. But I don't know if he knew what had happened to his wife. I mean, at that time, but, like, the trauma from that just happening to him, and then after finding out what happened to his wife, I can't even imagine. Seriously. Jesse Lee Cooks had been a loner most of his life. It seemed that he was hard to understand or difficult to get along with. He had a history of violence and committing major felonies. He liked to talk about violent daydreams he had by stating, What I plan to do someday is raid a white orphanage and take the little white kids by their feet and swing them like baseball bats and smash their brains out against a wall. So that's just a that's glimpse tough. into his brain. He's Violent. a disturbed yeah, individual. His fantasies always involved attacking weak people like children or the elderly. A few days after the hag incident, Jesse was on a stroll by the black self-help, not really heading anywhere specific. Now, I do want to say before this, he was at the Shabazz Bakery, mm -hmm. and he had baked some cookies for his friends, okay. Larry and Anthony. So when he went to go visit them at work, they weren't there because he found out that Anthony was getting married and Anthony did not invite him to the wedding. So oh, really? Well, so Jesse considered them his friends. And so he really wanted to get along with them. But he was a scary person. And so yeah. I think that said enough. Extra scary. Is that he what was it was? Very, yes, he was very disturbed. And so I think that made people uncomfortable and he, they felt like he was dangerous. 
Yeah. I mean, he was. Even I mean, though they were dangerous. They yeah. were killing people. But I think they felt like he that was another, level. yeah, no, another level. Okay. But either way, they were scared of him. And then I think he took that personal when he found out he wasn't invited. Okay. And so after this is when he's like wandering around. With his cookies. He gave the cookies to someone else. <laughs> so will you be my friend? No, he just gave them away. He was like, here, take these stupid cookies. <laughs> take these stupid cookies I made for my friends that are at a wedding. Aw. I'd feel sorry for him if he wasn't a murderer. Same. It was around 8.30 p.m. when a woman got off the bus at Van Ness and Market Street. She walked past him and he followed after her. When she was at the door, he got behind her and held a gun to her neck and said that she better be quiet or he would kill her. She agreed and followed him down the stairs to a dimly lit parking lot. He proceeded to sexually assault her, but she complied with everything he'd say. After this, he started to talk to her about racism and how the country has to change and that there would be a lot of killing in order to make that happen. After this, he raped her again and asked her if she was going to call the cops. She said no and even said that he could follow her into her house to make sure she didn't. He agreed to this, assaulting her again, and then asked her for her personal and work phone number. He said he was going to call her for a date soon, and if she calls the police, he will come back and kill her. Call her for a date? Yeah. There See, was something off. I think him. there was something going on yep. with him, and mentally. Her real name is protected due to the nature of the case, but in the book, she is referred to as Ellen Linder. That brave woman. Yeah. She and she survived. She tried to be as compliant as possible, and when he wanted to talk, she listened. Yeah, so she read him and maybe realized... I try and relate to him and talk to him, I'll be okay. I think so. And she was okay. Yes. Wow. Something later may make you mad about what happens, but... Really? Yeah, because later she does take out charges against him, but we'll talk about that. (laughs) Ten days later, Jesse was walking by the University of California Extension Campus. Frances Rose, 28, was driving to class in her gold Mustang. She was waiting at the gate when Jesse waved her down. She stopped her car thinking maybe he was a classmate or needed help. He asked her to give him a ride. And she tried to drive off because that's kind of weird. Like, mm-hmm. hitchhiking is weird anyway. But when someone just approaches you like, hey, give me a ride. Like, who's going to say, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I know there was hitchhiking in the 70s, but it started to become, well, no, I guess it was still a thing in the 70s, huh? Even in the late 70s. Yeah, because we talked about that in a few other cases. Yeah, like, Eilers, there was hitchhiking, and that was the 80s. Yeah, and it was, was still, the Midwest. like, this dangerous. California. Maybe California is starting to get it. Like, I don't know about this hitchhiking. But I really don't know the history of hitchhiking, so I'll be quiet. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I will. you'll never see me try to hitchhike anywhere. <laughs> no, ever. <laughs> but, so when she tried to drive off, he opened the unlocked passenger door and shot her in the head four <sighs> times. Oh, my God. So she never even had a chance. He was going to kill her no matter what. I mean, I think so, yeah. The first bullet went all the way through her lower neck. The second entered her upper neck and lodged in her brain. The third entered her right cheek, tore her mouth, and then exited. The fourth went into her right side, hit the chest wall and aorta, then coursed down to penetrate her liver and lodged in her left kidney. She died instantly. He ran down Laguna Street and turned onto Height Street. This time there was a witness, Mary Turney. She had seen the killer from her window and wanted to tell the police. She gave them a description and they radioed it out. Officers Thomas O'Connell and William Kelly arrived at the scene. They decided to patrol the area and see if they could find the suspect. On Steiner Street, they saw a man fitting the description they were given and asked him to stop. 
It was Jesse Lee Cooks, and he was sweating like he had been running from something. They patted him down, found the automatic pistol in his belt, and he was handcuffed and arrested. And Jesse's the same one that almost decapitated the victim in the first murder, right? That was Larry. That Larry's was Larry. the youngest one. Okay, Larry. But yeah, Jesse, Jesse was there. Jesse was there. He was the one who raped Kita. Okay. Yeah, he, he was the scary guy. Definitely. And just cold-blooded. He was cold-blooded, and I just, I think that he needed some, some help mm -hmm. mentally. By this time, there was a new addition to the group. His name was J.C. Simon. He was in his late 20s. He didn't have much of a criminal record, just a no-contest plea of possession of a stolen firearm. He worked his way up to a supervisor role at the Black Self-Help. He was known to be a cocky guy, and he usually dressed pretty sharp. And it's noted that, like, everyone was pretty, like, well-dressed. So, but he was just the really fancy one. He wore those blazers? Yes, and fedoras. Oh. On November 25th, JC and Anthony were on a drive looking for more victims. And they'd call these stings. The group would call this a sting? Yeah, like they're going to go out and sting someone. JC seemed to be the more eager party and asked Anthony for his gun. He reluctantly handed it over. Salim Aricot, 53, was opening Aricot's, which was the family grocery store that he had owned and operated for 13 years. Anthony stood guard outside while JC entered the store. He had been going there for a couple weeks, scoping out the area. So Salim recognized him. He greeted him by saying, Peace be with you also. Did you come for your apple today? That's when JC pointed a gun at him and said not exactly. He ordered him into the bathroom in the back of the store tied his hands behind his back with a necktie and shot him in the back of the head execution style. Before leaving, he cleaned out the safe and cash register. When Anthony saw this, he was frantic and said they shouldn't be stealing. He, he really is on this, like, we shouldn't be stealing. We but can kill them. It's so conflicting because they'll say, like, oh, we shouldn't steal, but then they'll still steal. <laughs> yeah. And like, oh, we shouldn't, like, sexually assault, but we'll do it anyway. We'll still do it. Okay, whatever. So not, not not a clear set of rules in this. It's like a pick and choose kind of thing. <laughs> Depending on how you feel. Okay. Yeah, in the, in the moment. JC said it was going towards the mosque's treasury, so it was fine. He left with about $1,300, and Anthony ended up stealing the victim's watch and wallet despite his protest earlier. Mm -hmm. A customer, Nellie White, entered the store and noticed it was empty. She felt like something was off and ran next door to tell someone. Police were called, and the scene was closed off. When the ambulance arrived, it was determined that Ericat was deceased. The homicide inspectors, Gus Coris and John Fotenos, arrived to investigate the scene. They were both very experienced investigators and would be assigned this case and the many more to follow. They talked to witnesses who reported seeing a black man standing near the front door of the grocery store acting as a lookout. They also believed that since the victim's hands were tied, robbery was not the real motive. So they felt like there was maybe some kind of hit or there was some other kind of like motive for this, okay. not just robbery. So right off the bat, they sensed it was something. Yeah, they were pretty experienced. So they, they, they figured something was okay. up. Manuel Moore would be the next to enter this group. He was acquainted with JC when looking for Anthony one day to go on a sting. He was about 6'1", weighed 210 with barely any fat on him and wore round gold wire rim glasses. They eventually found Anthony with a woman named Debbie, who would later be his girlfriend. Anthony was surprised to see Manuel since they had served time together in San Quentin. Who's the one that got married? Was Anthony? It was Anthony, but then okay. he got divorced. Okay, so that so because he he did long. propose to his girlfriend at the time. Did he propose with that ring? With that, that ring? No. Yes. Ah. But, then, but then they ended up getting divorced because he said that he couldn't stand the way she smelled. What? 
So now he's got a new girlfriend. Okay. But he used the ring that yeah. was given to him from the woman they murdered. Yeah. And was who gave him the ring? Larry or Larry. Jesse? Okay, Larry. Because I was going to say, if Jesse gave him the ring, then he didn't invite him to the wedding. I know, that would be pretty be, pretty shitty. But it was Larry. And he was at the wedding, yeah. Yeah. But Larry's a terrible guy. But they were just scared of Jesse more. They Yes, they were scared of Jesse because he was obviously got, had some things. Probably seemed like they couldn't control him, it sounds like. Huh? Yes. They didn't mm-hmm. know what he would do. He okay. was unpredictable. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, later, they all pretty much are unpredictable. Yeah. Okay, so he didn't like the way wife number one smelled. How did she smell? Like, she didn't shower, apparently, because that's what he said. Like, she wouldn't shower. That can be problematic in a relationship. It can have some issues there. Yeah, she probably She probably doesn't realize she dodged a bullet. Like, so what if I smell? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're right. (laughs) Literally, she dodged a bullet. Think about it. What if he killed her one day? He had a wife while he was in prison, so he's had his share of ladies. Later that night, the three of them would drive around town in the company-owned Cadillac looking for their next victim. JC once again asked Anthony for his gun, and he was still reluctant, but he eventually gave in. It was Manuel's turn to commit his first murder. Now on Hyatt Street, they spotted a victim by a payphone. Hate Street. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Hate Street. Okay. So now on Hate Street, they spotted a victim by a payphone. His name was Paul Dancic. He was 26 years old, struggling with drug addiction, and was going to use the payphone to get in touch with a possible connect. Manuel got out of the car, approached the public telephone, called out to Dancic, and shot him three times with 32 caliber bullets. Dancic staggered 20 feet before he fell dead on the sidewalk. These people had no chance of surviving because they would just immediately shoot them or shoot them from behind. Yeah, and multiple times. And yeah, they don't have a survivor yet except for the husband in the first killing, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. So here's what will make you mad, Um, maybe. Seven weeks after Ellen Linder's terrifying assault by Jesse Cooks, she is informed by Inspector Podesta that through his attorney, he is pleading guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for not pursuing the charges that were taken out in her case, which included kidnapping, rape, oral copulation, and aggravated assault. So they're dropping all the charges against her? What happened to her? Yeah. Yeah, because that's... he's pleading guilty. And, you know, with plea deals, they drop, oh. they, they'll drop charges to get the conviction. So it's the, like um, all her stuff they don't care about. That's all dropped just so they can get the murder conviction, which I understand. Yes, you want the murder conviction, but that's got to make her feel violated again. Yes, she did not feel good about it. But she said as long as he's in for life, she, then she she'll agree better. to it. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, though, she didn't realize at that time, California was known to let out convicted killers, even if they had a life sentence. So... Is this Brazil? (laughs) This was was California. (laughs) This was San Francisco. (laughs) Sounded like a last episode here. 30 years and you're done. 30 years and you're done. Murder. We don't care how many. So California was letting people out. um, Convicted murders. And I don't know if it was because the prisons were so full. I don't know if maybe that was why they were doing that. But I don't know. But still, wow, so she thought he was going to be put away forever. Well, he's in there for a while, so he doesn't get out to reoffend. But still, just her thinking that he you know, could get out. Yeah. Oh. On which murder? Francis Rose. Okay. When he was in the car, shot her in the face four times. Okay. That's the one he pled guilty to. When the temple got word that Jesse pled guilty, he was immediately disowned. It was looked down upon to plead guilty in what they called the, quote, white man's law. So they were like, we're done with him. Okay. 
Arthur Agnos, 35, was employed as a consultant to the California State Legislature's Joint Commission on Aging. Okay, on aging, like, offenders? Is this talking about strictly offenders, or is it, like, aging, like, wear your sunscreen? What kind of aging are we talking about? I don't know. Aging offenders? Is that a thing? Well, they age. They do, as as we all do. (laughs) (laughs) So, specifically for, it's, like, specifically for offenders? Maybe the California will. Commission on Aging advises the governor and legislature, along with state, federal, and local agencies on programs and services that affect older adults. Okay, so it's literally about the community as they age. Interesting. Members of the commission are consumers and providers of aging services, as well as researchers and academics from the field of aging. Literally aging. Okay. Like AARP? <laughs> Right. Probably. Yeah, like a like an earlier I don't know when AARP was created, but like that. Like something like that. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. so and I know he did want to help older people. So okay. that's probably like why he was involved in that. He was a liberal and sincerely dedicated to working with senior citizens, as we said, mm-hmm. minorities and low income families. He wanted to make a positive difference in the community. At 7 p.m. on December 13, 1973, he was on his way to a meeting with the residents. The topic would be the necessity of having a new health clinic built to serve the area, and he was all for it. JC and Manuel still had Anthony's gun, and they were driving around the city again at 8 p.m. After the meeting, Arthur left the health committee meeting feeling good. He walked to his car, and he ran into two women that he knew and started chatting. Nobody noticed the Cadillac as it drove around the corner. JC got out and walked towards Art, his back facing him. He took out the gun and shot Art twice in the back. He thought he had heard two loud firecrackers, but when he heard shouts that he had been shot, he turned around and saw JC 15 feet away staring at him. JC ran, even though his plan was to kill the women too. So I think that like the The fact that he didn't fall over and he was just like turned around staring at him, I think that shook him up a bit, huh? Yeah. And so he couldn't handle that and he ran. He ran away. So that may have saved their lives. The fact that the shots didn't actually take him down at that moment. Exactly. Wow. And he survived? Yeah. So a few moments later, he felt the pain and his shirt was dampening from the blood. He was led across the street to a kind family's home who tried to help him while the police were being called. An ambulance arrived and he was sent in for emergency surgery. He would end up surviving and 15 years later, he would serve a term as mayor of San Francisco. That's awesome. So two survivors now. That's great. And then he went on to probably do some great things in the community, hopefully, to help. Yeah, it seems like he really wanted to advocate for people who didn't have money, the elderly, minorities. That's great. Wow. But then there's the flaw in their belief system because, see, you can't just go up to people and kill them. I do agree with this, but it seems like they picked their victims randomly. They didn't know anything about their victims. They just saw them and would decide on site. Man, that's so scary. I know. So they didn't know, like, this person was a good person. I mean, you know, they were advocating for low-income families or anything like that. They didn't care, right? Yeah. It's just somebody to get their quota so they can get their they were just, wings, right? They were just focused on their quota and becoming a death angel. Do you ever notice how, like, in stories about, like, survivor stories, it's always, like, a kind person or, a, you know, a kind family's house that they show up at? It's never, like a jerk or do you think when you're in that state and you're just like about to die are you guiding yourself to the right person 
maybe, or maybe you're just lucky enough to have people who are willing to help. Some people are like, you know, mind my business. Yeah. I'm not getting involved in whatever is going on over there, which is like the, uh, what do they call it? That phenomenon where you you hear someone call for help, but you just, you mind your own business. I forget what that's called. But it's Um, a thing. And it's definitely a blessing when there are people who are willing to help and put themselves on the line. That same night, Marietta DiGirolamo, 31, was waiting for her boyfriend to come home. It was past 9 p.m. and she decided that she was tired of waiting and wanted to go for a walk, possibly get a drink. At the same time, JC was in the Cadillac, frustrated that he ran away. For some reason, the fact that Art didn't fall over when he got shot shocked him. It was Manuel's turn to look for a victim. That's when they spotted Marietta walking down the street. She strolled down Devisadera Street and Manuel was approaching her from the opposite direction. She did not suspect the man who was approaching her but once they crossed paths, he shoved her into the doorway of the barber shop. He pointed the gun at her. She angrily asked, what do you think you're doing? Then he shot her twice in the chest. Oh. When the second shot hit her, it caused her to spin around, and then he shot her a third time in the back, causing her to fall forward. Manuel ran off. Police arrived at the scene, and Marietta was rushed to the hospital. She was later pronounced dead. The city's crime lab confirmed that the gun used on Agnos and DiGirolamo was the same one used to kill Salim Aricot and Paul Danzig, the thirty-two caliber. This was Anthony's gun, right? Yep. He hasn't killed anyone yet. <laughs> but he's like, use my gun, sure. That's well, fine. <laughs> it's like they keep- Fine press- with me. They do keep, you know, asking for it, and he, get- he does get pissed. He's like, no, but then he eventually gives in. They had not yet connected the Hag and Francis Rose incident. Witness reports all pointed to one or more young black men as the perpetrators. They were emphasized to be random, unprovoked, and ruthless. This is around the time investigators started to suspect that there was a racial motive involved. On December 20th, 1973, Ilario Bertucci was finishing up the last of his responsibilities where he worked, which was a 7-Up bottling factory. He was 81 years old, and his family constantly bugged him to stop working and enjoy retirement. He refused because he liked to work and stay busy. It made him happy, and he was still an active guy. After he finished sweeping the loading dock, he put his jacket on, took his nightly free 7-Up from the cooler for his walk home. As he walked home towards Godigan Street, he was humming an old Italian folk song. JC, Larry, and Manuel were driving around town again on the hunt for another sting. While driving around, JC was insistent that he wanted to get a woman that night because he had just gotten into a big fight with his wife. She was taking his daughter and moving away from him. She didn't agree with his beliefs, didn't like his friends, and they would always end up fighting. At that time, they spotted Ilario walking on the sidewalk. Manuel got out of the car, hiding the gun in his jacket, and walked towards him from the other direction. He fired four bullets into him, the first entering his right shoulder. It hit a bone, detoured across his chest, and exited his left armpit. The second and third went through his right chest and back. The fourth entered his left chest and exited his back. He died almost instantly. Manuel ran to the getaway car and they drove off looking for another victim. On that same night, 20-year-old Terry DiMartini was driving home from a Christmas party. She was trying to find a parking spot near her home on Central Avenue. There was a car double parked, so she tried her best to squeeze in and park in the tight area. As she got out of the car, she noticed a man walking towards her. It was J.C., Before she had time to say anything, he took out the gun and shot her in the side, in her rib cage and her stomach. One of the shots nicked her spine and her legs gave out. 
He aimed the last one at her head, but it missed since she fell over. She survived, but was left paralyzed. Oh my god. And I think we'll see that JC becomes frustrated because his victims would survive. Yeah. He's like, I'm trying to get my stings, but they're not. It's they not don't working. Count. Right. When law enforcement arrived at the scenes, they were not surprised to see the 32 caliber shell casings. The next day, the SFPD assigned two homicide detectives, Rotea Guilford and Earl Sanders, to the case full-time to assist Chief Investigators Fotnos and Corys. You may remember these names if you listen to our episode of The Doodler. They were busy in San Francisco, weren't they? They, they sure a, were. They had their hands full. Had some serious murders. On December 22nd, Larry said that he felt that Allah was moving him and he needed to kill again. Anthony had stashed his gun away in the bathroom above the ceiling tiles a few days earlier. He didn't know that Larry saw him hide it there, but this day Larry would take that gun. Neil Moynihan, 19, was leaving a bar on the corner of the Civic Center Hotel. He was carrying a brown paper bag with a stuffed teddy bear. It was a Christmas present for his little sister. As he walked south of 12th Street, Larry came around the corner and shot him. The first bullet hit him on the right side of his face and exited out of his neck. The second hit him in the left side of his neck, went down to the chest and lodged into his lung. The third went through his heart and exited his back. He fell on the sidewalk and died instantly. Larry then ran down Stevenson and eventually made it to Go Street. That's where he saw Mildred Hostler, 50, who was making her way towards Otis Street, where the bus stop was. She saw him running towards her, but didn't know what to do. At this point, Larry was laughing hysterically, and she wasn't sure if he was drunk or on drugs. She tried to walk in the opposite direction to avoid him, but instead he walked up to her and shot her four times, all through the left part of her chest. She fell, but did not die immediately. This happened six minutes after Neil Moynihan's death. Larry left the scene, hid amongst the pedestrians on the sidewalk, and eventually made his way back to a meeting they were having that night. So he just killed two people within minutes. Within six minutes. Anthony saw the news coverage on TV about the shootings, and something told him to check on his gun. He went... Well, yeah, they're using your gun. I know, but he didn't know that they knew where he was hiding it. Well, clearly wasn't good at hiding things. Well, Larry was definitely, like, intrigued because they were having a meeting at the mosque. And then Anthony said he wanted to... He had to go to the bathroom. So Larry followed him. I don't know why... But he did, and he saw him. He put the gun and stashed the gun. Yeah. Mm. So he knew, but... Don't. Anthony, like, doesn't want to be involved in this, but he is. He's got this gun, and he's like, don't use my gun for your killings, but yet he's part of it. He, it's so, so yeah, I, I feel like he's very conflicted <laughs> in this group. <laughs> I think he needs to break ties. Well, I think the thing is, if you break ties, these people are considered your family, your brothers, and so... There's that Scientology aspect of it, huh? Exactly. Okay. It's any kind of, like, cult mentality, right? Like, they don't want to lose that sense of belonging, I think at some, like we say, at some level, everyone wants to belong to something. Yeah. But then when they get in too deep, when it comes to like murdering and yeah. killing, yeah, and then you it's and you learn much. what people are yeah. capable of, you are like hesitant to leave because you don't know if your life is now in danger. True. So I think maybe there was some of that. But either way, uh, he looked for his gun. He saw it was still there, but then he smelled it and knew it had just been shot. So he knew he, that was well, his gun. Doesn't he have a really good nose, too? Because he was smelling his wives. and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, He's got a good sense of smell. That's what, <laughs> what we're uh, understanding here. Like, smell was important to him. He probably, you know, was very sensitive to it. 
he later drove to the Golden Gate Bridge and threw the pistol into the bay. So after, that gun after is he sniffed the bridge. <laughs> like this is the this is the right place. <laughs> yep, this feels right. Tell the currents and going <laughs> south today. So toss it. Yeah. So gun gone. They're like he's like I am not going to be pressured into this anymore. On December 23rd, Larry called Anthony to invite him to a party they were having at the loft. At this point, and possibly even prior to this, like we talked about before, Anthony was feeling more and more hesitant to hang out with them. He was upset with Larry because he figured out that he took his gun and used it to commit those murders. He tried to make an excuse not to go, but Larry said they were having a, quote, special kind of turkey and that he needed to be there. Special kind of turkey? Mm-hmm. Like Butterball? Don't think that Costco. was that kind. <laughs> Not what's Costco. A special, what's a special kind of turkey? Well, we'll learn. Murder turkey? We'll learn shortly. Okay. Yes. yes. So he was like, you need to be here. Like, we're not taking no for an answer. So he did show up, but he was late. And that was after the festivities had already happened. Probably not a good idea. Yeah. Well, when he got there, Larry was pissed. And a few of the other members told Anthony to go clean up what was left in the tarp bound with yellow plastic rope. It was heavy and full of blood. Okay, that's that's not a good sign. Probably wasn't the turkey. So what was in the tarp was a body... And it was, uh, it was definitely cut up. When he carried it to the van, he dumped it into the ocean by Sutro Heights. He didn't know what happened to it, but the next day the body would be discovered on the beach in San Francisco's Sunset District. It was thought to be a young man in his 20s or 30s. The body was castrated, decapitated, and his hands and feet were hacked off. The legs were pushed up and held against the chest with wire. And to this day, investigators have not been able to identify the victim because there were no teeth or fingerprints. So he is known as John Doe number 169. He was just mutilated. Yeah. This is what they invited him to. This was the party. This was the turkey. Wow. Supposedly. And so I'm sure. So good thing he did show up late. But that. He, I think he knew. <sighs> I think he knew what was going to happen. And that's yeah. why he didn't want to be involved in anything. So yeah. he still hasn't killed anybody? No. Okay. This is Anthony, the one with the gun. Yes. Well, not anymore. Not anymore. The one that had the gun and smelled it and realized it had committed murders. <laughs> Tossed it. Yeah. All right. So far, he has not committed any murders. Okay. So far, he's been an accessory to some things, but he hasn't killed anyone personally. Accessories get the same sentence, right? Depending on some things, maybe. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. That night, Guilford and Sanders were out patrolling the streets where Neil Moynihan and Mildred Hostler's murders had taken place. They spotted a Dodge Dart that had been mentioned by witnesses as one of the getaway cars in the previous crimes. The officers followed it, and the car eventually stopped. It was Larry Green. Guilford asked him for identification, and he told him who he was, with little cooperation. He had an attitude, basically, the whole time. They asked if they could look in his trunk, and at first, Larry didn't know what to say, but he agreed. They didn't find anything but stacks of Nation of Islam magazines that they'd normally sell on the streets. There were no grounds to detain him, and he had no criminal record, so the officers let him go. Both officers would state that they did not have a good feeling about him. But legally, they had nothing to hold him, so they exactly. had to let him go. Yeah. But they sent something. Their I think he was on their senses. Yeah, he they, he was definitely on their radar. Part one is ending here. That was a lot. Ugh. Yes, it was. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ugh. Yes, and in part two, we will cover more murders, how they're arrested, how they're caught, the trial. 
So we have a lot, a lot. more. We have a lot more. <laughs> so a lot this more to talk about. Is, there's no way you could have put this into one episode. So it's definitely a two-parter. Your first two-parter. It's my first two-parter. Aww. I hope it's okay. <laughs> it's going to be great. You're doing a wonderful job. I hope we're uh, giving sufficient information so everyone knows what's going on here. Because I think it's an important case. Yeah. And I'm like I said, I'm shocked that I hadn't heard about it before you came across it doing the Doodler episode. Yeah. I would have never known about it if I didn't do the Doodler. Yeah. So I, I'm glad I came across it because we do want to cover lesser known cases. Yeah. Any thoughts about it so far? I've read most of this and I'm still like, oh my God, what? It's heavy. It's so heavy. It, it really kind of shows like how cold blooded yeah. it was and just how quick everything happened. And like, you're scared to go outside yeah. because you could just be a random right. victim. Because they had the doodler at this time and they also had the zebra murders at this time. Yep. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a lot happening all in San Francisco. I don't know what was going on. Yeah. That's, energy was happening. That's some bad energy. All these murders. I but know. then you get into the 80s and that had a lot of murders too. I want to do an episode on that one day about the history of the surge in serial killers in the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> would we be talking about the differences or like the just, escalation? Right. Like why there was such a, a surge of serial killers during the 70s and 80s. Yeah, because there are still serial killers to this day, but it feels like the 70s and 80s were just... It was heavy. Full. Right. And so I, I think that's something I'd like to look into. I think it'd be a fun episode. Let's do it. Okay. All Anything right. else in closing? I think just check out part two because you'll want to know how this ends because <laughs> yeah. there's some plot twists. Yes, you're going to be a little unhappy. At you're least be, one I think you'll be surprised. Surprised. I was a little confused about one thing that happened, but we'll, we'll talk about that in part two. So until then, stay caffeinated, get hobbies, and don't murder people. That's right. Bye. Bye.